I'm Jody Whites, Results and Success Coach, and these podcasts teach you how to make significant changes to live your dreams, make a positive impact on the world, and drop your regrets. It's time for you to get spectacular. Welcome back to Your Spectacular Life. I am Jody Whites, your life and business coach, making your decisions and bringing clarity to your goals for the right focus and the right outcomes to make your professional and personal life a spectacular reality. I am very happy to announce Noah Healy as my guest today. Hi, Noah. Hi, Jody. Great. Um, I'm going to let you know a little bit about Noah, and then we'll jump into his very interesting story. Noah is a market designer and game theorist working on better economic systems. After training in nuclear engineering, he worked for tech startups at the peak of the dot-com boom. Becoming fascinated by the mathematics of information and computation led to patent work on a better commodity market design. Great. I love where we're going to go here. I'm I'm kind of a tech nerd, a tech fan. And uh, how did it all start? You, wow, went into nuclear engineering. Was that before the game theorist or? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, Noah. Uh, So I went to University of Virginia, which is in my hometown, Charlottesville, started there actually in high school, uh, the local high schools. I think now we mostly use community colleges, but when I was there, if you completed a course of study at the high school, you, they would pay to make you a continuing education, like, you know, student scholar, and you could go over and take classes at the university. Uh, I was a pilot member of a school system to accelerate mathematical education in the public schools. And that meant that in my sophomore year, I had completed uh, AP Calculus. Oh, my word. And had you always been interested in math or was there something competing? I've always had a facility for, for mathematics and computation. Uh, my, my father inadvertently taught me algebra in first grade, uh, helping me with, with homework. And I can actually clearly recall uh, the counting exercises that we did in kindergarten, uh, where I brought the work up. I was the fastest kid in, in my class at that. I brought the work up to the teachers and saw them count across and then down these rectangular arrays and worked out the existence of counting by lots of numbers and and multiplication tables from that from that observation. Well, so yeah, yeah, uh, uh, reason and 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 arithmetic have have always come pretty naturally to me. Yeah, so that's really interesting. I love 
reason and arithmetic. Now, we're not talking about philosophical reason unless we're going to go back to Euclid who, or any of, um, I mean, how would that fit in? As well, well, that's that's an interesting thing about modern philosophy. They That field has abandoned the logic that is its founding. Yes. Uh, uh, the work of Aristotle on the, the forms of logic uh, were actually effectively completed by Lewis Carroll, of all people. My word. Uh, Charles Dodgson uh, was, was a logician, and he developed the syllogism to okay. the limit of what it's actually capable of. And I, I've got some of his puzzle books on, on that kind of that that kind of mathematics uh, symbolic oh, logic yeah. uh he wrote a textbook i i own a copy of that not a first edition or anything but uh that's that was that was a big push in the 1800s uh mm -hmm. to to work on the the values of logic and in the 1900s uh that work continued and what what this this falling in love with with the mathematics of computation turing's work was yeah. dealing with um something called hilbert's 10th problem there was a mathematician at the close of the 19th century uh called david hilbert who felt that with the sort of tightening up of the Newtonian calculus and, and linear algebra and other major breakthroughs that occurred, that math was really in a position to take on some very large problems and make great new strides. Mm -hmm. And so he proposed a program of questions that he felt that math would be capable of answering. Uh, <laughs> we haven't actually gotten all of them yet, uh, we did we did a lot of them, and much of the important mathematics of the 20th century was done in pursuit of one or another of these these questions. What we're going to have to, I, I'd love to look at those questions. What was the one that, you know, if you just that one that really challenged so you, the the Hilbert's, one question. Hilbert's tenth question was. Uh, is there a way to mechanize the solution of diaphatine equations? Uh, so to unpack that a little bit, diaphatine equations are basically the mathematics of integers. It's, it's the kind of math that we teach grade school children. Um, all, the, all the inputs and outputs are whole numbers and, and that's it, that's all there is. Um, and the global consensus was that there was going to be some set of tricks and approaches that would just always work, that we would be able to figure out what that set of tricks and approaches were. And then we would be able to solve these problems because they're, they're easy. We use them to teach kids mathematics. Uh, what Turing figured out was that and, and not way, only- um, Turing was um, at, yes. at the Code Breakers. Uh, he he broke. He was working at Bleakley 
um, center in England around uh, the Second World War to break the codes that the Germans were sending to each other um, in order to try to win the war. Turing was instrumental in breaking that um, those codes and finding out how the Germans were communicating to eventually in, instrumentally win the war for uh, yes. the allies, the allies and the English. And um, let's make it a. We'll go on on this because I'm I'm fascinated about your life. Um, okay. So let let's break it down, summarize, and um, I want to know again. Um, talk about uh, what you're working on now. So how would you summarize the, um, the integer challenge with the Hilbert's question? Um, well, that's not strongly related to what I'm working on now. That was, that was more a, a step along the way. <laughs> okay. the, the mathematics of calculation um, what, what Turing proved was that the problem was impossible to solve, mm, okay. which nobody expected. Mm. And that actually throws a fairly massive spanner in the works for philosophy and, and thought, because what Turing did was come up with a mathematical formulation that covered essentially all of human imagination, and then showed that that formulation had limits and that problems like Hilbert's 10th problem were outside those limits. Oh, how interesting. Wow. So, so there's, there are tools that are available to us now to build exciting and powerful new things, but, those, but the ability to, to gain access to those shows us these limits that we're up against that we never previously believed existed. And, mm. and it would be an interesting and important task for philosophy, I think, to confront the existence of those limits and, and attempt to reformulate itself in recognition of that. But that has not happened yet. Mm. And, and the non-existence of those limits is a fundamental assumption of basically every philosophical system that exists because right. like wow. i said at the time that hilbert came up with the question everybody thought that there was going to be an answer sure i love the fact that you know somebody comes up with with questions we at this stage in our life the mathematicians come up with we can't answer that and you're opening the door for philosophers and deep thinkers to potentially come in and solve that. Um, so I, I love that. I love when there is a, a door open, an opportunity, and who knows? I mean, mathematically, maybe not, but philosophically, yes. So I, I'm interested. I know we're going to jump ahead from your background, and because I'm really interested in um, your patent work on commodity market design and mathematics. So 
Give me background on that. Again, we've got a wide range of listeners, so you may want to keep it simple, summarized, clear, Sure, and that'll help me out as well. Yes. So I was working on a problem of communicating information over a network, Um, just trying to create a model for how to extract truth from a network of potentially unreliable observers. And that's where my starting position was. Okay, tell me a little bit about the observers. These are other people on the other end in in a social media realm, in a, I mean, where, what context? That's that's a completely reasonable uh, thing to plug in. Another completely reasonable thing to plug in would be an array of sensors that are part of a Wi-Fi mesh network. a combination of human observations and and machine feedbacks would would qualify. Uh, and give me an example of human observation feedback. And what would that look like? Uh, well, for example, weather reporting. Um, we have, I believe, about 130 years of weather reporting right now, and the earliest phases of them were not mostly instrumental. They were mostly sort of diary logs of people who were living in specific parts of the world reporting what they observed of the previous day. Mm-hmm. And that's to get all the way out to 130 years, you have to include those sorts of observations. Um, the, the currents and tides of the world's oceans were actually originally mapped out in a similar type of situation where there was uh, companies in London that were making these charts and they had a reward system where navigators on boats could note down their location uh, at and what time it was, put it in the bottle, seal the bottle and toss it overboard. <laughs> and then boats that were floating around the ocean, if they observed one of these bottles, they would retrieve it, oh, note wow. down where they were when they retrieved the bottle Mm. and navigators who sent in these retrieved notes were eligible for rewards from the, the chart makers. And they would take these scraps of paper that had been around the oceans uh, and, and attempt to figure out a model of how water was moving uh, across the globe. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, oh, that uh, that is a human observer. I get that. That's a human observation system. Now, you again, your goal is to extract unreliable data. Um, well, reliable data from potentially unreliable sources. Okay, reliable data from unreliable sources. So, again, in a very summarized, brief way, how? How did that, you know, that's what you started out doing. Um, Were you able to do that? Uh, Yes, that's where the game theory came in. I came up with a 
game theory generalization where you could create a game for the observers to play uh, where in order to provide information into the system, they have to pay to put their information in. And then there's a reward system for information that turns out to have value to the system. Mm. Um, hopefully that would be reliable, true information. A little like uh, throwing the bottle over, right? If it's <laughs> the modern day bottle tossing method. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious again, um, tell me a little bit about how that developed into a better commodity market, because I know traders uh, and individuals are always looking to see what is truth and if there are patterns. Yes. So I uh, went next door, uh, a friend of mine who I worked with uh, was is my next door neighbor at the time I went over and uh, was excited. I had this cool new sort of thought toy. Uh, and he asked, can you predict the stock market with that? And I <laughs> said, no, because you can't pay enough. You can't, you can't offer a reward that's great enough uh, to get people to buy in to, to that system. And we chat a little bit and I was walking back to my house and I had the, I had kind of the intuitive thought that while you couldn't build one of these to gather market information, there might be a way to put a recursive piece into it. Um, uh, and recursive might be a little technical. That's, that's sort yeah. of a self-reflective piece where the system refers back to itself. Oh, um, so a recursive piece into the system that would allow it to behave as a market. And it occurred to me that that was an intriguingly difficult problem. So <laughs> I set about trying to work it out of whether or not you could extract uh, a marketplace design from this system. And that took me about six months to work out how to do that. And then I was analyzing the properties of the market design that, that I'd come up with. And that's when I discovered that its properties were superior to the kind that we actually use. Mm -hmm. And and that's when I, you know, went on the it's like, okay, well, I have to. I have to get this thing in action then um, because mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of economic advantages to using better marketplaces. Absolutely. So looking at this product, you spent six months on it. You kind of built in some, let's go back and compare self-reflective data to compare. And I'm again, being very general with that. Who are you targeting this software for? There are three important roles to play in the marketplace for a commodity. There's the producers of the marketplace, uh, the consumers of that commodity and the informed forecasters or speculators in that marketplace. Um, there are other roles that exist within our existing market structure. Uh, 
but those are the people who the marketplace needs to operate. And they're the primary beneficiaries of the market's operation. Uh, so those three groups are the three groups that I'm targeting to improve their, their circumstances. So um, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm just looking at these group, um, these groups and um, looking at it, would you say the consumer is the, the person who does day trading um, or are you looking at large financial um, houses that buy, you know, large, large chunks of stock in order to have that in their portfolio for their clients? Uh, no. So the consumer is, uh, for a commodity, it's like the factory or, oh. or so on that needs that commodity as an input for whatever business that they're in. Like gold, for example. Well, gold, yes, but much more uh, steel, mm-hmm. petroleum, mm-hmm. Um, rice, wheat, corn. Um, rice is a $300 billion global commodity wheat's a 250 billion dollar global commodity uh, oil is close to a trillion dollars global um so how are- how would how would um and i'm not sure whether uh you know the the regular person um how would they use this product or maybe they wouldn't use this product the majority of people would not be engaged with the commodity market, just as today the majority of people aren't really engaged with the commodity market. Um, where where the ordinary person's life would be impacted would be downstream. So what this is doing by lowering the transaction costs of the marketplace, what happens is the producers of the things that that you would consume through retail um, are, are going to have more product available at a given price. So the first effect of lowering the transaction cost is going to get pushed sort of all the way down the line to the producers. So if, uh, and I use farming a lot because this uh, agriculture is huge in America, um, the, the average wheat farmer's margin is around 15%. Uh, so in order for a, a wheat farm family to have a sort of median family income, they have to be producing something like half a million dollars in wheat. Mm. Um, market overheads in the neighborhood of 5% aren't really out of line. Uh, in fact, the average overhead, according to government statistics, is 16%, but it's the larger liquid markets have thinner, thinner overheads. Uh, so half a million, 5% of half a million is $25,000. Uh, if that were to narrow, to say 1%, then $20,000 in new revenue would show up at that farm. Nice. Uh, yeah. and, and they'll have to pay taxes on it, but right. 
you go from having like a $70,000 annual income to a $90,000 annual income, yeah. that's noticeable. And that, uh, that sure is, yeah. Uh, so what that affects is suddenly farming is a much more attractive thing to do. So people come in, do more farming, that increases supply, that pushes prices down um, in order to attract enough consumption to actually use it all. Uh, okay. So then Nabisco, <laughs> you know, their, their flour doesn't cost as much. Sure. But, you know, granny whoever who has her new cookie recipe her flour doesn't cost as much either and so she can she can try to expand and see where that goes so 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 you're you're hitting on on many different people who could be affected with positive cash gain um and that could be the farmers um and the consumers who use flour or buy rice or restaurants, the, the cost of food can go down. Now I'm gonna, I'm just gonna flip our conversation just a little bit. Um, and I, I love this system. I mean, thank goodness you are working on something like this. So, you know, I, you know, what have been the challenges, not the technical challenges, but really, you know, getting people to understand and like this, what are what are what are, have been those kinds of challenges? Just getting it to fly, selling the idea, and how have you pushed yourself to keep going? Uh, so the challenges, yes, have been considerable. Um, the the first year or so, I was basically just spewing calculus uh, because that's really the easiest way to understand how this works. Uh, That's not the best way to communicate information, but uh, it is, it is sort of how I understood it. Uh, The first, the first hurdle uh, was going into how to get on track with the patent process and yeah. pursuing a patent attorney. Um, uh, I talked to a lot of people who basically said, I can't help you because I, I can't understand mm-hmm. like what you're talking about. Uh, so I can't write up what you're talking about in patent application form. Uh, I did finally encounter uh, an attorney who said, uh, and this was after about a year of, of you know, running through these things who, who gave me that line, but then said, I will help you look for somebody. Like, I, <laughs> right. I, I, think, I think that you're talking about something that actually is patentable. It's just, I don't understand it. Not nobody understands right. it. So um, you, you eventually got your patent and what, you know, well, this is a year or are we I, I, it, we're still in pending. Um, I was, it was, it was skin of my teeth last year, um, almost exactly a year ago now, um, they gave me a notice of acceptance and then they withdrew it, which is extremely rare. 
Oh my goodness. So how did you pick yourself up? I mean, obviously I'm talking to you today. How did you personally say, I'm going to keep going? What did you, what did that look like in interpersonally? For me, it's, it's just the compelling nature of the, the underlying math. That story about how farmers and miners can have a higher rate of return leading to greater production, leading to a stronger economy, the, the potential gains from adding $700 billion in economic activity a year per year, every year for centuries dwarfs the every other opportunity I'm aware of. So <laughs> yeah. for me, understanding what this is and what the consequences are, there's nothing for human beings to work on that's more valuable or important than this. So no matter what setbacks I might encounter, it, it, that's still true. Like the, getting this done out there in practice working uh, is the best move for our species. Mm -hmm. and, and since I'm the person who's carrying the flag, uh, I, I got to keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at giving back and being of service and, and really with hooks into the economy, which really affects everyone um, as an amazing venture. Um, that is, that's really commendable in picking things up. So um, what, you know, just, just give me a quick wish. If I could have a wish in the next six months, what would that be? For, for one of the financial institutions that's involved in commodity trading to license and, and launch a pilot program, uh, with, with this technology and just give it, give it its shot basically and, and see, see where it goes and what, what it can do. Um, mm. So would that be funding or testing the product? Uh, it's, it's sort of both at the same time. Um, funding mm. is, it's a little tricky. The, the high funding cost of launching a new marketplace is regulatory compliance and just meeting the, the requirements of actually being allowed to operate a market. And that cost is so extreme that I, I have no reasonable way to approach it. Mm -hmm. um, so in fintech, one of the sort of big classes of fintech entrepreneurs are basically kids who are either still in or just out of college who have been given a hundred million dollars to to play around with but and, they but it's not a check right financial it's, check is is typically what vcs award a, 
a startup with a great idea. Is, is that what we're talking about? Well, so fintech is is a bit of a burgeoning space within the tech industry involving uh, integrating technological ideas with markets and other offerings. Sometimes they're huge successes. Sometimes they're major failures. Sometimes they're both of those things. Robinhood is probably the most famous major fintech thing. Um, Robinhood is a trading platform that uh, I believe does not charge anything uh, when a trader, you know, uh, does business with them. That's true. However, they yeah. don't trade you promptly. They sell yeah. your intent to trade to others before before they go. Um, and that may or may not be illegal. Um, right now, it looks like it isn't. But administrations change, and, and so do laws, and interpretations are, are fluid. Uh, so who knows? Who but. Knows? So you, yeah, uh, go ahead, yeah. and I'm so sorry, large banks are looking for these types of opportunities. So they will they will get some of these sort of you know kid entrepreneurs and bring them under the umbrella of their firm. The firm is allowed to do these things, and that's where the hundred million dollars comes in. The kids are just doing little tech stuff that doesn't cost all that much money. This from a technical perspective, doesn't cost very much money at all. From a regulatory perspective, it's it's quite daunting. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a little old for that that path. The, the people <laughs> my age um, are usually like retire transitioning uh, financier guys who have pretty much made all the money they need to make for a lifetime and want to get rich. Uh, okay like like a michael bloomberg although Uh, michael was actually fired i think because the the firm that they were working for was collapsing um but they they've got the contacts and the and and the money to pay these kinds of initial prices so they they just do that um and I'm I'm not I'm not either of these paths into the door right so now. So you're you're trying your wish would be essentially to create to have this new commodities market uh, as a major player, even a minor player. I, I would with, like to start as a minor player. With, um, right with the but, other but, markets, but just yeah, give it a chance to compete. Um, even on uneven footing with the existing marketplace, because I believe that structurally uh, it will rapidly take over because offering that kind of better deal to producers and consumers means that switching is of great personal interest. So if you're, if you're one of those farmers that's, you know, has the potential for a 30 or 40% lifestyle improvement you're probably going to want to change and and this system would make it so that most producers would be in that category um right well i love everything i'm hearing i'm gonna um just you know say that your product and let us hope that it 
can get that footing. And I love this intention as, as a minor, minor player, minor market, uh, because it can help and touch so many people. And I love that as, as part of your motivation uh, to keep going, to keep pushing it, to get up and dust your pants off and, and try to make those connections. Um, how can people contact you, Noah? How can they look at more information of what uh, you're doing? Uh, yes, well, I have a website, uh, Core Disc. That's what I, I've named my company. It's for coordinated discovery. So it's C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C. Uh, dot com dot com uh, right. you can also reach out to me uh, noah p healy uh, n-o-a-h-p-h-e-a-l-y at yahoo uh, will reach me uh, i'm also noah healy on linkedin um, uh, and great healy is by the way h-e-a-l-y so yes yes there are the ey healy's uh <laughs> my grandfather did a little genealogy and he claimed that the the plain y healy's were the scotch irish that like went to ireland and stayed there and the ey ones were the ones that went to ireland and then went back to scotland before coming over <laughs> but uh he was not a professional genealogist, so I, I don't know. That's just a, that's a family <laughs> rumor, basically. Right, right. Well, I want to thank you so much for talking about your idea, un, unpacking this, you know, complicated uh, discovery that you have made and worked very hard at. And again, um, love the benefit to many and many people worldwide uh, I hope it really goes through. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been great talking to you. I'm so grateful that you've listened to the end of this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review it, and share it with your friends. I love teaching insights so that you can have a more impactful and meaningful life. It's my mission to build a thriving community of happy, fulfilled people. Want more? Visit my website at yourspectacularlife.com.